Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to the Play Like a Girl podcast, one of the shows for SB Nation's Ohio State site, Land Grant Holy Land. We are two girls talking about sports because our opinion counts too. I'm your host, Meredith Hine, and I'm so excited to be joined today by my co-host, Jamie Urich. Hi, Meredith. Thank you so much for having me back. So delighted to have you as always. Um, I have to ask, how does it feel to be back in Big Ten country? Oh, it feels so good. So good. Um... I, most of my friends here are either UCLA or USC grads, so um, they are all very upset, but I told them that we would be going to all the games, and I'm so, I'm so happy. Well, I'm excited. I know you've got your Chicago roots, and that's basically the capital of the Big Ten anyway, and hey, who doesn't need a nice trip to LA every couple years or so? Yeah, I'm kind of hoping that they're really nice to the, like, cold weather teams. Except Michigan, they should have to, like, deal with the cold. Yeah, too. Um, but, like, bring them out later in the season when it starts to get chilly in, like, Ohio or Illinois or Wisconsin. And let them enjoy some sunshine. Love it. It's, like, bowl season, but earlier. Right. It's the best of both worlds. Exactly. Can't wait. Um, this is utterly unrelated, but did you have a chance to see the new NASA photos? They are insane. Yeah. I feel like we had to acknowledge it because they're just like, the universe is beautiful. They look like paintings. Right? Like, they're so cool. You guys, if you have not checked them out yet, like, they look like paintings. They're spectacular. Um, they are my obsession for today. Maybe for always. I don't know. I kind of want to print one out and like put it on my wall. It's so pretty. My new goal is to like work in PR at NASA. Like, wouldn't that be awesome? That would be so cool. Mine is is PR for Sesame Street. (gasps) Oh, that's fun. I just like, I love those silly little 
furry creatures. Ugh, so much. Who's your favorite Just puppet? Mr. Snuffleupagus, for sure. Oh my goodness. And like the last thing I did before the COVID shutdown was I was working at Carnegie Hall at the time and one of the Carnegie Hall photographers is also the Sesame Street photographer. So he set up a tour of Sesame Street for me and a couple of my coworkers. So it was like literally like two days before everything shut down. It was the last thing I did was go to Sesame Street. And I am not kidding you. I like wept like a baby when I saw Snuffy. What a dream. Um, congratulations. That sounds wonderful. It was the happiest day of my life. And like I joked as I was leaving that it was going to all be downhill from there. And then it really was because like two days was. later, the world stopped. Well, well uh, hopefully things are starting to go back uphill. Um, we are excited to have you on the show today. Uh, in terms of positive things, our theme of the week is burning questions. So it should be a fun show today. Uh, we do have a lot to get into with that, but before we do have some walk-in items that I wanted to talk about, Jamie. Um, so first of all, we've already addressed kind of the geographic piece of USC and UCLA moving to the Big Ten, but like more broadly, what are your thoughts? Um, I think that this is kind of I, – I, I do think that this like spells the end of the Pac-12, um, and I think that it's not going to be – the first major kind of like realignment moment that we see. Um, I'm curious to see who else will join the big 10. I feel pretty confident that it's not going to stop with USC and UCLA, whether it will be Washington and Oregon next, or um, whether they'll take some of those kind of like big 12 teams that would be good in the basketball realm remains to be seen. But I do think that like, we're going to, we're moving towards super conferences and this is, this is kind of the like beginning of the end. Oh, for sure. And I think you hit on a really important point there. And that's that like, we're obviously focused on football being just a couple months out from the start of the season. But like the Big Ten is now maybe the best basketball conference in the NCAA. Yeah. Like the addition of UCLA, like the historical value between like UCLA and Indiana, like the modern value of teams like Michigan and Wisconsin. And well, I am trying to be unbiased about Ohio State, but Ohio State too. But like it's it's going to be big. Yeah. And I think like that brings up an interesting point because the OSU basketball team, particularly on defense, has been like just kind of disappointing. Um, like they obviously like were a two seed in the tournament. Like it's, it's, we remember the Oral Roberts last, right? Like, it's just like, they're almost there. And I do think this is going to force them to like really step up to the plate or get left behind. And I mean, we all know like, and it's only going to get tougher from here, but yeah, Ohio state has been on the cusp for so many years. The big 10 is only going to get tougher. So will they be able to make this turn into greatness? Um, Maybe, I don't know. I feel like they may have peaked in 2007, but that breaks my heart. Yeah. That That was one of my favorite teams ever, though. Like, if you could transplant Aaron Craft onto that team. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, I also really love Aaron Craft. So the Aaron Craft years were really important to me. But, yeah, if you could just kind of pick him up and drop him on. Ugh. Love him. He's tiny. You could pick him up and put him in 2007. <laughs> anyway, 
Tiny for like a basketball player. I think he's still like six three or six one, whatever. Anyway, um, uh, new topic. So I don't know if you saw this, Jamie, but Condoleezza Rice uh, could possibly own a share of the Broncos. A report came out that she is part of an ownership group that is looking to purchase the franchise. Yeah, it's. I believe they're linked to the Walton family, right? Mm, that sounds right. So for any listeners who aren't familiar, um, all three of you, the Walton family is <laughs> um, the the owners of the Walmart franchise. So they have a lot of money. Um, but yeah, they released a statement. I think that they that Condoleezza Rice is joining their ownership group. Um, it's an interesting turn. Like I wasn't expecting that from from Condi. But like, weren't you? She is so. Like politics aside, whatever. She has been like the trailblazer for women in sports. Like she was the first woman to be a member at Augusta. She was on the college football playoff committee. Like oh, I mean, I am. She's in the the. And I cannot remember quite the specifics of like why I felt this way, but like I'm certain that her being on that membership committee is how Ohio State got in the year that we won the national championship. For sure. Like I'm I'm certain of it. Yeah. But anyway, I I feel like we've talked about this on the show previously a few times, but like women playing different roles in sports and sports ownership being really important. Um, in particular, like Natalie Portman is an investor in some women's sports teams in the U.S. Yeah, um, Angel City Football Club. I mean, I just love Natalie Portman and it just like added to the okay. list of reasons so, why I adore her. Really quick aside, I went to their first game, the Angel City Football Club's first game, which she is the, I believe the majority owner, but certainly was like kind of the founder. Did you see her? rallied everyone oh she was sitting like three rows in front of <gasps> us um she was sitting like with the plebs in the bleachers like she was not in a fancy box she was like in the stands with the fans and her family and like thankfully no one bothered her everyone was just like letting her do her thing but I just kind of love that she was like in the stands with the people cheering she was so invested in the game she like knew exactly what was going on i was like i love this this is i have so much respect for this um because she's an owner she could have sat in a fancy box if she wanted to she didn't sat with her family like in the bleachers where everybody else sits and um i thought that was really cool that is so cool and one more reason that i love her now yes um So speaking of women playing new and exciting roles in the realm of sports, uh, this is actually a really big topic that we could do a whole show on. But Sandra Douglas Morgan um, became the first black woman president ever in NFL history. Uh, She was named – so exciting. Um, The Raiders named her as their new president last week. Um, One more time for the people in the back, representation matters. Uh, so having this really incredible person be president of the Raiders is just one more step for equality for women within the NFL and within all of sports. Yay! Yeah, this is huge. And she's already been such a trailblazer. I know she was the first person of color, not not woman, person of color, to serve as chair of the Nevada Gaming Control Board. And so that was kind of her background. Like she ran a massive organization 
Um, I feel like she's so well equipped to do this. And the, the Raiders, her statement was so beautiful. She like talked about, you know, like the Raiders haven't necessarily lived up to their potential, but she believes so strongly in the promise of the team. And like, I just, oh, it's, it's so cool. I'm so happy for her. Um, I also just want to note she's, she's the first black woman. She's the third woman to be a president of a team and also the third uh, black person to be the president of a team. So like, this is huge representation across the board. Um, And I, I just, we need so much more of that. We need to just really see the people in boardrooms, the people in these high places making decisions reflect what is happening in in terms of like demographics in our country and have it not just be like a small percentage of the population being represented in all of the high decision-making places. So I am ecstatic for her. I'm ecstatic for the Raiders. Um, I just think this is huge for the NFL and for all of the, all of the ladies who love the football. Yes. And like, so yes, yes, yes. Um, Also, the fact that you and I here are NFL fans, right? You and I are just sports fans in general. And it's makes it makes financial and business sense for teams to be putting women in these positions because yeah. it, it represents your fan base. Women make up half of the population. And when it's an old boys club in every franchise in the front office – you are not representing your fans and you are doing a bad job of serving them. Like, do you remember when it was much, much worse, like in the 90s, when every beer commercial was objectifying women? When, I mean, oh my gosh, have what it is. Like the NFL cheerleaders, they are what they are. Um, but it was such a misogynistic sport. And it was at, in many ways painful to watch. And it's gotten so much better. There's still a long way to go, obviously, but it's gotten so much better as representation has improved. So you want to appeal to a broader fan base? Like you need to be doing what these teams are doing and putting women and people of different backgrounds in these positions of power. Um, So I'm going to step down from my soapbox and also just acknowledge like I had no idea, honestly, until I read this press release that there were so many attorneys who were presidents of franchises. Which, when you think about it, like, does kind of make sense. Yeah. Because there, you do have to have some, like, legal literacy. Um, so it, it does make sense to me that that's the case. Um, but, yeah, it, it's surprising. Like, you would also think that, like, bi- just business people in general or the finance backgrounds would maybe be more prominent than the attorneys. Yeah. Um, but really, really cool. Also, last point, because this is like this is just such a feel-good story in so many ways. Sandra is from Las Vegas, like born and bred, went to high school in Las Vegas, went to UNLV for law school. Like, this is her city and this is her team. And she's was on the committee to bring the Super Bowl to Vegas. Like, she is so she was invested before she was the president. Yeah. Which I I always love, and I think that you should be I, the the president of your team. Like, should be a lifelong fan of your team because nobody knows and wants your team to succeed more 
than someone who's not only a fan, but also like has some financial investment in there. I just, I just think this is like, she's such a great choice for this role. And um, I have not historically been a Raiders fan, but I will certainly be they it's Chicago bears till I die. But like, I will certainly be wanting good things for the Raiders to come of this. Oh, for sure. Especially, I mean, they've made the right changes in the last year. We will, I have high hopes. Um, anyway, I'm like getting emotional, Jamie. We need to move on. Um, but so as I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, this week marks burning questions week, uh, on our site. Uh, so wanted to get started with some of our sports related takes. Uh, Jamie, do you want to kick us off with one of your burning questions? Yeah. My first burning question is will Notre Dame join the big 10? Um, I'm curious if they are going to follow USC and UCLA, on over to our conference. And also I'm curious if the big 10 wants them after the debacle in which the big 10, um, sought them out and had that deal. I can't remember what year it was, but they had like a deal in the works and then Notre Dame kind of backed out at the last minute in a little bit of a sh- in shady fashion. Was that in 90 when Penn state joined? I can't, I cannot remember. So this is such a fascinating question because there is so much bad blood on both sides. Like, it makes so much sense for Notre Dame to be in the Big Ten. Like, if you were a lay observer, you would be like, oh, yes, this university in southern Indiana that regularly plays all of these teams from the Big Ten mm-hmm. or has these historic rivalries. Like, of course, they should be in the Big Ten. But, like, I didn't realize that back in, like, 1907 or 1897 or whatever, literally more than a century ago, I think it was Iowa and Purdue were granted membership in the Western Conference at like a meeting in Chicago. Notre Dame had submitted an application. They didn't send anyone to advocate for the school and their application got denied. So that was like the origin of the bad blood on Notre Dame's side. Okay. Um, I actually didn't know that either. I know, right? It was like, like I mean, apparent. This is apparently common knowledge to some. Dave, my husband, the Iowa fan, obviously has the history of when Iowa joined. So maybe he just had this factoid about like, oh yeah, Notre Dame got denied. But then I googled it and I was like, oh my god, they got like. I mean, they messed up. If you're passionate about joining a conference, you should send a human to advocate for you also like South Bend is much closer to Chicago where this meeting was being held than like Iowa or Purdue South Bend so, is like on, an guys. hour and a half in traffic like maybe I mean 1897 like I think you're all in like a horse and buggy situation maybe yeah that's true what do you think traffic was like with horses and buggies? Like before in Chicago? Yeah, just like in general. Like I, I'm trying to picture what like a traffic jam with a buggy would look like. That's my I mean, next burning question. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. I mean I also think incredible. like the other interesting thing with Notre Dame is they mostly play an ACC schedule, but is the ACC going to exist that much longer? Like, scheduling-wise, it actually probably makes – geographically, it makes the most sense for them to join the Big Ten. Scheduling-wise, it probably makes the most sense for them to join the ACC. But, like, is the SEC – or is the ACC, I mean, going to exist in five years? Okay, so I actually struck this from my burning questions because I had too many. 
like the ACC is firmly in the middle of the Power Five. Like you have the Big Ten and the SEC that are clearly the winners in this situation, like the Big 12 and the Pac-12 that are clear losers. But like, does the ACC fall closer to the winners or closer to the losers? I don't know. Right. It's also like having two super conferences versus having three. It makes more sense to me to have three than two. But I guess all of this kind of then, this all kind of leads into our our following burning questions. Like, what does that expansion look like? And then what does that mean for the other sports? So I'm going to pitch it over to you. Yeah. So the question is, uh, will conference expansion prevent the college football playoff from expanding? And it's so interesting because like the f- the current format never made sense and i think when it was first introduced we all recognized that this was the first step toward a larger playoff system that just hasn't come to fruition um but you cannot have four spots for five conferences but can you have four spots for two super conferences and then a group of 3 plus a group of 5 or do you have three spots for your super conferences and then one wild card. Like in many ways, it feels like you don't need to expand if you have a crowned champion from the undisputed two best conferences in football, right? Right. So that's disappointing because we all wanted <laughs> a bigger playoff. <laughs> well, I did. I. He- the thing is, like, I kind of wonder if they will still expand, like, especially if there's two conferences, then it would make sense to expand to more teams. And then there's just more representatives from each conference, kind of in like a, like a March Madness format, but not as large, right? Like, we'll we bracket it out. And it would maybe be like the worst team from the SEC plays the best team from the, I don't I don't from the Big Ten I don't know but I I think it's possible I think if there's three conferences then then it starts to get a little dicey. Well, you bring up an interesting point. Um, we all probably imagine that the Big Ten and SEC will be both be sixteen team sixteen eighteen teams in just a couple of years, right? Um, they're already going to be 16. That's wild. Uh, so will there sort of be an expectation that there's an internal playoff system almost like the NFL and the AFC and the NFC? Will like the Big Ten have its own playoff and then automatically face the SEC champion and then just like forget everyone else? Yeah, I mean, that's entirely possible. I also think you just brought up kind of lead into my next question, which is if there are two super conferences and let's say even like generously, let's say there are 20 teams in each, which I think 16 is, is kind of where we're sitting right now. 18 seems very feasible, but like, let's even say generously there's 20 teams. What happens to the rest of the teams? So are we going to adopt some sort of system of like relegation and promotion where there's like a lower conference that the kind of the worst teams in the Big Ten and the SEC would get bumped down into that like lower conference and the best teams in that conference would get bumped up at the end of each season? I mean, I think – so this is honestly such a great solution 
to this like the scenario that we're describing. Like if you theoretically could get up to 20 teams and you have 40 teams, there's currently what 138 teams in the FBS. Like so many of those schools rely on recruiting and putting on division one football games. Like it's just it what are they gonna do eventually? So if you have this idea where you can like you can make it into the big leagues, but then otherwise you're kind of like division two or FCS or whatever. I think that makes a lot of sense. Like there is an opportunity to move up, but yeah. (laughs) I also think like from a recruiting standpoint, if the NFL is pulling their draft picks from the, from the big leagues, like you got to give kids a chance. Like the people who have a chance to play in the NFL um, are going to, go exclusively to the higher teams. So if there's a system of relegation and promotion, it doesn't hurt their recruiting quite as much. Yeah. But also, like, I hear that argument, but we've seen even FCS players or players from non-Power 5 conferences get drafted at pretty significant levels in the NFL. Like, you have Ohio State, Alabama, LSU, whomever else, and then everybody else, right? Like, the top teams will still be the top teams, but, like, will we see that much of a drop-off if they're not? That's true. That's a good point. That's a good point. I mean, we'll see. We'll see. But, yeah. So, on this note of the changing football landscape, my next burning question is, will the transfer portal ever slow down? And it ties in with what you're describing, too, in terms of relegation. I think think no, because I think if you're someone who is ultimately – trying to make football your lifelong career and you're at a school where you're not either not seeing playing time or you can extend your eligibility, you're going to go somewhere where you can do that so that you can boost your draft prospects. Thousand percent. And like, let's take the relegation example. Rutgers finishes at the bottom of the Big Ten. Sorry, Rutgers. Like how many players will transfer to another Big Ten school that's not getting relegated? Interesting. I also wonder... Will there be some sort of like caveat that prevents like a mass walkout if you get relegated? Oh my gosh. Like I almost wonder that if you get relegated, if you have to transfer within the lower conference, like you could transfer schools down, but you can't like, you couldn't like transfer your way up to like an Alabama to keep playing. My head is exploding with these implications. So many... I don't envy the people who have to figure it out. Yeah. I mean, like, we should um, – excuse me. Can I say that? We crap on the NCAA all the time for, like, not putting rules in place to, like, mitigate some of these changes. But, like, it's hard. I think also sometimes you just don't even think about – there's so many moving pieces, you don't think about them until it becomes a problem. And you're like, oh, wait, we need to do something to stop that in the future. Yeah. Well, if nothing else, you and I are thinking about these implications. Yeah. I mean, and I guess, like, speaking of, like, relegation and promotion and transfer portals, like, that kind of brings me into a Buckeye-specific question, which, like, I don't – let's be honest. Even if there were a system of relegation this season, I don't think that the Buckeyes would be in danger of being relegated. However, their defense – as a standalone unit has been abysmal and maybe deserves to be relegated. So I'm curious, like, will the Buckeyes defense improve this season um, with the 
new defensive coordinator in place with the new recruiting that we've seen? Do we think that this is going to be, do we think that we're going to see an uptick this year? I mean, you have to, right? Like, okay, okay. We're not going to say that the defense hit rock bottom. Once upon a time when the Browns went 1-15, and I said they can only go up from here, and yet they did not. Um, <laughs> but, like, I, Jim Knowles is a good coordinator. It seems like he has the chops to be able to do something, but maybe next year will be something of a hiccup and we will see a downturn before we see an uptick. But Ohio State has the number one recruiting class in the nation that includes its players on defense. Um, will we see freshmen starting that? I don't know. That seems less likely, but it's, there's gotta be some structural improvements. Like the strategy should improve, but here I am. I don't actually know. What do you think? Um, I think that it, I think that it will. I don't know that we're going to see it like quite at peak form yet. It's, you know, they're, I don't, I hate the term rebuilding year, but I think like this is, they're on the uptick, but they're not going to quite have become what they can be. And I think with a couple more seasons under Jim Knowles, then like the pieces will be in place. I trust him. And I mean, it's also like, it's kind of, I don't want to say it's a moot point, but like the offense is so good. The offense, knock on wood, doesn't appear to be taking a downturn at all. So like the defense has time to figure it out. Like, it's not like Ohio State is relying on its defense to win games for the most part. Except for that one time against Oregon and that other time against Michigan. Mm -hmm. Sorry for bringing it up. (laughs) (laughs) I forgive you. It happened. We have to deal with it. We, you know, we have to acknowledge it. Otherwise, we're not going to improve. So it's just how it works. Um, Exactly. Well, I'm getting sad again, so we're going to move on to – we're going to switch gears a little bit. Um, What do you think is going to be the next non-revenue sport to become a revenue-generating sport? Women's basketball. Don't you already consider that a revenue-generating sport? Not really. See, okay, this question for me stemmed from like women's basketball has sort of made that cut now, so now it's going to be the next one, but – Regardless, it's going to be women's basketball if we don't consider women's basketball. Yeah, if women's basketball is not um, – I think if it's not women's basketball in terms of – like if we say they, they are already a revenue-generating sport, um, then my next answer would be I, – I, and I here's the thing. I don't know if it will be men's soccer or women's soccer, but I do think it will be soccer. Interesting. And my gut says women's soccer because the women's soccer – professional level has taken such a um such a turn in terms of like popularity and people like follow the the not just the u.s women's national team but also like the kind of professional league at a level that is generally like higher than the men's sports in terms of like like the women are better are have better um records and better performance and so like they are really in the news. And I think that that is going to lend itself to like revenue at the collegiate level. I think. So my answer was going to be hockey, men's hockey specifically, but I like your answer better. You know what? It could also be men's hockey. Uh, I I also don't know. Mm, 
yeah, I don't know. I think I'm going to stick with women's soccer. Well, what's interesting, so again, kind of going back to women's basketball and like regardless of if it is or is not a revenue generating sport currently, like it is clearly on that path. Um, And I would say like your answer about women's soccer, like the infrastructure of women's soccer in the US is similar in many ways to the structure of women's basketball in the US. You have a strong and growing stronger professional league that provides an endpoint for collegiate athletes. You have a really strong Olympic program or uh, like national team type of situation. Um, so all of these factors like would definitely make women's soccer viable as a revenue generating sport. Fingers right. crossed. We'll see. And I think like if you look at the WNBA, that has – seen a significant boost in popularity in recent years. And I believe that that kind of trickles down to the collegiate level as well. Like if I'm a college student and I can't go see the professional team play because the either they don't exist in my, in the city where my college is located or I can't afford it or whatever, like the next best thing is to get student tickets to the collegiate level sport and jump on that train. And so I think that it does trickle down Um, to the collegiate level. Yeah. No, I mean, I agree. And we saw this exactly in play last year at Iowa with Caitlin Clark because everyone wanted to see her. There's no other professional sports in Iowa. Right. Like, of course, you're going to pack the arena and sell out the game to see Caitlin Clark. I think they, yeah, they sold out against Michigan, I think it was. Um, But yeah, we'll hopefully see more and more of that um, in coming years. Yeah. Um, so kind of piggybacking off of my, will the Buckeyes defense improve this season? Do we think the Buckeyes men's basketball defense will improve this season? I don't know what's happening on that end of the court, but it hasn't looked super pretty and I'd like to see them turn some things around. Yeah. Uh, it, it reflects the football team in many ways, right? Cause it was like sort of a problem two years ago. It was a big problem last year and here we are today. Yeah. I I just, I mean, I hope that also there are so, so many freshmen. Um, there are so many freshmen on this team that like, I do think that, um, I do think that that puts a lot of pressure on the newbies. Um, but I also so like they're going to have to step up to the plate, but I I do think that they're so talented that it could boost the defense. It's hard. I mean, you never know with freshmen. It's so I this is what's hard to me about basketball, right? Yeah. I feel like the landscape can change so quickly. So like within the Big 10, I have no idea where Ohio State is going to sit. I feel like I need to get 5 games into the season before I can even make an educated guess. Right. It also changes, like, partway through the season. Oh, yeah. Once you get into conference play, it's a whole different season. You know? Like, the, it's – what what we see in the, like, kind of early, early games, and even, like, by the time – even there's a difference even between, like, early conference play and, like, February play. It's – well, it's, it's just, such a long season as as we've seen. Injuries can play such a factor. Like Justice Suing and oh gosh, like has he played an entire season? 
I don't think he has. But it's it's just very challenging to play for, you know, five months and then have all of your conference tournament and NCAA ter- tournament bids because you're just a different team in February, March than you are in November, December. Yeah. Perhaps more so maybe than any other sport. And like, you know, being hot at the right time might be more important in basketball than anywhere else. Um so this is a this is a slow burning question in many ways. I would like to see it get better for them. Okay. I believe in you guys. Well, it's just so painful when you see the offense doing great things and then, and then you just lose. Right. Well, and the thing that's interesting about basketball is like it's the same people. I know. <laughs> so it's like you're so good on one end of the court and then you just like cannot play defense. I need you to, I need, I, we need to work on this. I, I believe in you. I believe in them. Oh man. It's truly like a job description, right? And like, you actually have to fill all of the skills required. Right. Oh, what a world. Um, all right. Switching gears, heading to the NFL. Uh, Jamie, this has just been eating me for months. Why did the Browns take Deshaun Watson? What did they see in him? I can't. I do not know. And like, are we going to see a ruling on his suspension before they start training camp? Seriously. Like, and I mean, all rumors are pointing to he's going to be suspended for the whole year. So do you just sit him? And, like, assume he's not going to be there, which I would morally choose to do anyway. But Yes, but I don't know how much morals play a factor in the NFL. Well, they certainly don't. To the to our previous discussion of the first black woman being appointed president, this is why we need better representation than having someone who's been accused of how many sexual assaults? Yeah, I just... Like... And this is not... He's certainly not the first example of this. Like, the... NFL just doesn't really care. And I, but it I'm just cur- I'm curious if the judge is going to rule on his suspension before they start training camp. Like are they going to know? Are they going to be able to to plan ahead or are they just yeah, maybe they're just assuming that he'll sit the whole season. Yeah. I mean, I'll be on the Jacoby Brissett train all year. <laughs> yeah. We'll call it good. Um, but yeah, it just the the moral decision, the financial decision, like the like personnel decision, it all just seems out of whack. And I'm trying to like put myself in the mind even of the most callous owner. And just I just don't understand it, Jamie. But again, there were multiple teams buy- buying for him. So yeah, very strange, very strange choice. Was not the choice that I would have made. I know. And I'm trying to find like a little pin or something that I can put on my Browns hat that says like, you know, love the Browns, like not our quarterback, but we'll see. If anyone has suggestions, let me know. Um, So my next question is sticking with the topic of football, but kind of going back to our non-revenue sport question, I'm curious whether women's tackle football will ever be a thing at the collegiate level. Because I know that we've seen, certainly seen women play, take the field in collegiate football games, but partially because it it is such a physical sport, like 
I, I love football. I couldn't safely play it against men of the size of collegiate football players. Um, but I don't want to be relegated to flag football either. Yeah. So I'm curious, even at, even at like a club level, if that would ever become a thing. Well, I mean, rugby is a thing. So why isn't tackle football? Also, as an aside, I've been using you as a talking point in many football-related conversations. I'm like, my friend Jamie played football. I love football. I miss it. But, like, I would have just – I mean, I'm, like, a 5'4 human. Like, I'm I'm not large in that regard. I don't have the height, certainly. Um, I I would just – be pancaked. Yeah. I mean, even when I would play like flag football with like co-ed plat flag football, it was still challenging to match up with taller people because I'm also a short person and yeah. they look on me. Um, <laughs> woe is me. Anyway. Um, no, I mean, I think that kind of You know, we had this discussion around women's basketball and women's soccer and the trajectory that those sports are on. Like, if the NFL shows more signs of becoming, like, a more equal league, uh, will we start to see this trickle down to the collegiate level? And will we see women's sports or women's football become a thing? I don't know. Like, it feels like a 30-year time horizon, Jamie, but I feel like it's possible. Yeah. I think I, – I don't think this is something that's, like, imminently going to happen, but I do think it is within the realm of possibility. Yeah. I think it's a great question. But speaking of long-term solutions, uh, my last burning question is, will historically bad franchises ever get better? Um, as a lifelong Cubs fan – I am legally obligated to say yes, they will, if they have the right people in place, because I remember the days of the Cubs being like way below 500, um, which they are right back to this season. But they had like a, a good run and they did win a World Series. And it was like not a fluke World Series. It was like they had taken the time to start at the club level, build their way up and or um at like the AAA level, build the way up, bring those guys up to the majors and put all those pieces in place like they played the long game and it worked and it worked for several seasons. So, I do believe that historically bad franchises can get better, but they have to get past the in- instant gratification needs of the fans like when the Cubs switched management at the start of that, they outright said, we are going to be really bad for a couple of years, but we will win you a title. Please trust us. And everyone did. And so like, we didn't need the instant gratification because we knew that they were playing the long game that was communicated to us. I think that is a great way to think about it. It is challenging. So like I was talking with my friend who's a Panthers fan and they obviously have will have struggles at quarterback this year because the current battle is between Baker Mayfield and Sam Darnold. Um, defense will be great, but like their offense will 
be pretty awful. And there was just like this year was not the year to take a quarterback in the NFL draft, right? But next year will be. And so it's like this patience game of waiting like for the pieces to fall into place, but also like having a timetable and having the strategy to acquire those pieces. Um, Again, as a lifelong Browns fan, that strategy has been severely lacking for most of my existence. Um, But we'll see. Um, You give me hope with your Cubs story, Jamie. Yeah, I think – and I really do think it's a matter of not just playing the long game but communicating that to the fans so that they don't immediately, like, pull all their money out of the franchise. Yeah. Because you still – And I also think for some franchises, it doesn't have to be the long game. Like, you look at the Cavs and it really came down to just, like, one great piece of the puzzle in LeBron. Um. But I think for most historically bad franchises, it does require some patience and some foresight into like, this is a four or five seasons down the road payoff, not a we're going to win a Super Bowl this year or we're going to win a championship this year payoff. Yeah. Um, I think all of those points make sense. And I do. Yeah, there's this like there's all these different categories. Like there's the puzzle piece category and like the long-term growth category Um, and understanding and communicating uh, is critical because communication, no matter where you are, is important. Um, Anyway, uh, that that was quite the list of burning questions, Jamie. Yeah. I'm like, oof, that was a lot. Um, We will have more burning questions for you in a moment. Uh, We are going to take a quick break though, so stay with us. Welcome back. In keeping with our theme for today, we are going to stick with some more burning questions, but now we are going to move into the non-sports related category. Uh, Jamie, do you want to kick us off? Yes. I would like to know why iPhones start recording the live photos before you actually take the photo. Huh. If you're not aware that this is happening, take a live photo and like make sure you move and notice when the photo started taking it's before you hit the snap button, which means our phones are recording us at all times. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Terrifying. That it blew my, I learned this like two weeks ago. I didn't know this until two weeks ago and it has been eating away at me ever since. Wow. Um, well, that's scary. Thanks for sharing. Um, as a proud owner of a Google phone. Yes. I'm that asshole on all of your group texts. Um, I need to understand if my phone also does this. Is it all phones? Um, I believe it's any of the iPhones. I don't know about like Android phones. I'll report back. Um, All right. My burning question is who started at Dunder Mifflin first? Because early on, well, when Jim and Pam are having their little grilled cheese sandwich or whatever on top of the roof, when they're performing Threat Level Midnight, Jim says, do you remember what you said to me my first day at Dunder Mifflin? Which implies that Pam started first. But then Jim later, when they're talking about his crush on Pam, says that he had a crush when Pam started working there. Hmm. So like, I don't know who started at Dunder Mifflin first because we're getting mixed messages here. In my bones, 
I feel like Pam had to have started first. I agree. Just because, like, it's an energy thing. I can't even really put my finger on it. It's just an energy of, like, I think she's the kind of person until Jim came along where she would, like, stay in a job that she wasn't necessarily, like, obsessed with, would have kind of just, like, it was her nine to five. She was going to show up. She was going to do what she needed to do. And then Jim comes along and she like does her art and it's like this whole thing. But I think that she had to have started first and then just was like stayed there forever. Yeah. And I mean, like she was engaged to Roy. I feel like, and like they were working there. Like he was working in the warehouse. She was the receptionist. Like it would have felt stranger for like Pam and Roy to come in after Jim and then like Jim and Pam have their thing. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Thank you for indulging me. Um, I also have a TV question and it is what happened to Tony Soprano. Did you watch the Sopranos? I sure didn't, but I'm excited to hear your take. So like the, I don't have an answer. Nobody has an answer. The ending of the Sopranos is like intentionally open-ended. You just like have no clue. So I, I mean, I, sorry for anyone who is, has not seen The Sopranos. I feel like the statute of limitations on spoilers has run out, but like, I believe that he died. Yeah. Um, but I, there's like, you, we don't really know. And the creators have said that they don't want us to know. So we'll just never get an answer. All right. So my next burning question is why don't movies based on books actually stick to the book? Um, the obvious example that I'm thinking of right now is Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire when Harry's name gets pulled out of the Goblet of Fire and in the book, Dumbledore says calmly, Harry, did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? But then in the movie, he shouts at Harry and sort of physically assaults him and says, Harry, did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? So it just, why? Why? When the stage direction is there, why does the movie not match it? Yeah. It's I think like having spent a lot of time in LA with people who adapt books for a living, like I have started to understand a little more like why this happens and some of it is just like the studios make calls and like some of it is just because like and, and for this specific instance, there's just, that's just like a choice that was made. But like, for some of them, it's like, we need the plot to move faster in order to like, keep this at a normal length movie or whatever. But um, I also am like a purist where my books are concerned. Like if I love a book, I don't, I love the book. I don't want you to mess with it. It's very, very challenging. Um, I hear you. I appreciate your perspective from an actual like, how movie making works because I don't have that. Um, that being said, I probably would be willing to sit through an eight-hour Harry Potter movie, like a single yeah. one, probably. Yeah. But, like, give me an intermission for bathroom breaks and to get, like, my M&Ms and stuff. But anyway. Fair. Thank you. Um, I would like to know, you know the song, like, the song Ignition, and it's, yeah. like – it's the remix to Ignition. Is there a non-remixed version of Ignition? Like, does it exist? I've never heard it. I'm Googling it because I have – I never thought of it, but – How do I hear the non-remix of Ignition? 
According to Reddit, the non-remix is fire. But the remix, but like, the original? And there's an original? I've never heard it. I've only ever heard Ignition Remix. I, I'm with you. I have no idea. I mean, is it like... I'm like, a- I don't want to listen to the non-remixed version now because I don't want to, like, support R. Kelly. But, like, in the days before we knew that R. Kelly was someone we shouldn't support, the Ignition Remix is a banger. So, like, I just have always wondered if there was a non-remixed Ignition. Maybe it's not R. Kelly. And therefore, maybe it's okay. But I don't know. Um, I think it's a great theoretical, philosophical question. (laughs) On a related note, uh, my next question is what happens to one-hit wonders after their one hit? I'm thinking specifically of the fictional scenario in Bridget Jones's diary where her friend, like, was a one-hit wonder in, like, the 80s and then just was, like, living off of his fame for, like, ever. Yeah. Is that what really happens? I I guess, like, I guess they continue to, like, make music for smaller audiences or they, like, get a day job. I don't know. I mean, is it kind of like NFL players who, like, play two seasons and then, like, don't play in the NFL anymore? I guess. I guess. And, like, like how, how much money are they making off of this one hit long term that is supporting them. Like, I feel like you would still need some additional source of income, especially now with streaming because they're not like making any money off Spotify. It's true. This question became top of mind. Uh, I was listening to, it's actually a really good Spotify playlist. It's called Daily Serotonin. Got all the, it's a really good like mix of classics, but that dream song, He Loves You Not, came on. And everyone's room was is such a sensory memory for me. We would do like roller skating in gym (laughs) class. And it was like, I have like sensory memories of roller skating around my grade school gym with that song, like holding hands with my best friends. That's, that's very charming and adorable. Thank you for sharing. But like, where are they now? What are they doing with their lives? I have no idea. Well, anyway, that's my question. (laughs) Um, I also have a question about what happens to certain people. I would like to know what happened to Brian Schaefer. Where is he? Who is responsible? I feel like it's his friends, but I will never understand how he got out of that ugly tuna without being seen. I just, it will haunt me. It will haunt me until the day I die. Like, where is Brian Schaefer? I remember when this happened, like, it was... Perhaps like it was so, so creepy because I was in high school at the time, like in Columbus, and it was like it was just a scary thing because they were like, I don't know. We never knew what happened. Right. And you don't know how to protect yourself. Yeah. It's just so you know the layout of that ugly tuna. It's like how how could he have gotten out of like I just it's unfathomable to me as someone who spent an exorbitant amount of time at Ugly Tuna. In college, like, I don't understand how he got out unseen or how he was, like, taken out unseen if he was taken against his will. It doesn't make any sense to me. It's a second floor bar with, like, one way in and one way out that we know of. I mean, yeah. Well, I I don't know if we'll ever know. Someone will have to, like, own up to it very late in life. I need, like, a serial podcast about this. Like, This American Life, what are you doing? Well, I mean, maybe someone – I mean, maybe we should start a podcast about 
about this and ask for information if anyone knows and we'll just collect little little baby clues until we solve it um anyway uh on a lighter note where did cameron diaz go she is still alive she's not missing but like she hasn't been in anything in like years yeah like did she retire do actors retire I mean, yeah, and they should. Like, everyone needs their, like, sailing off into the sunset. I just Googled her, and, like, four hours ago, a story came out about why she stepped back from acting. Really? Doing a movie with Jamie Foxx. But the last film she did was was Annie eight years ago. And then she talks about why she left acting. She wanted to, like, take a step back and kind of evaluate her, like, the whole picture – of what she was doing with her life because she felt like acting was all consuming, but she is coming back with a Netflix film with Jamie Foxx called back in action. That hey. just got announced. Okay. Okay. Well that was timely as it turns I out. I love that um, there's a question with an answer here and a timely one at that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> On a sort of a similar note, like I would like to know why Julia Stiles isn't being cast in just like everything. Like she also kind of disappeared. Um, she was like a darling in the nineties and early aughts. And then just like, what is she doing? She is perfection and should be in everything. Like, where is she? I agree. I didn't think about it until now, but like 10 things I hate about you is the film I watch at least six times a year. Yeah. And I know she's done a lot of TV, um, in the UK, um, but like, I want some Julie Styles rom-coms over here. Yes. So if we could have her back from the UK for like a hot second, I would appreciate it. Agreed. Uh, I think she should be cast in everything. Like you can continue to have her for a TV season, but then like, I would like her for a couple movies. This seems like a reasonable trade-off. All right. So relating to, you know, like the 90s and 2000s and roller skating and dream and happier times, um, why were Dunkaroos discontinued? The number of foods that have been taken from us that I will just like never understand. I just like – I have a hard time believing – the Dunkaroos like stopped being popular or that people stopped eating them. Um, yeah, I don't know. Well, like I know that there was like, obviously we're trying to like get like, there was like that push to like make lunch foods healthier and stuff. And maybe it was that, but like, come on, you don't have to take them away from me altogether. I mean, if Capri Suns can still be a thing, then Dunkaroos should be able to still be a thing. Yeah. And like, the frosting, like the Dunkaroos. I, listen, I am someone who could like eat frosting out of a tub with a spoon. It is like a weakness for me. The Dunkaroos frosting was the superior frosting of all the frostings. I mean, I prefer it with the Dunkaroo, but yes, the frosting was good. I probably would not eat it solo. But like you wouldn't want the cookie with a tub of frosting either. Like no. you want it with the Dunkaroos frosting. It was it was an appropriately portioned unhealthy dessert snack for your school lunch. Like, yeah, I I disagree with whoever at 
whatever food conglomerate decided to discontinue this. Maybe they'll bring it back like for nostalgia's sake and every millennial will purchase it. I hope that they do. I hope that they see a comeback. That'd be fun. I'd love that. Anyway, uh, before we wrap up the show, uh, Jamie, do you have any shout outs for the day? I sure do. Um, this is a super exciting one for me because I am going to shout out um, my dear, dear, dear friend, Molly Winston, and her teammates on the Boston Renegades. Um, Molly is a friend of mine from when I lived in New York, and she plays women's tackle football in the Women's Football Alliance. And the Renegades, which is her team, she's Boston-based, just won their fourth consecutive national championship this past weekend. The game was aired on ESPN. Um, So kind of going back to that tackle football, women's tackle football question, like the Renegades are setting the bar for what women's tackle football can and should be. And I am just so proud of her and so proud of them and all of the work that they've put in to build this women's football dynasty. So congrats, Molly. That's incredible. Kudos, Jamie, for having very cool friends. That's awesome. Yeah. And like, I mean, the fact that there's already a league should, I mean, maybe I will move up my prospectus from 30 years to 25 years for The thing is, like, until Molly started playing, because she's been on the team for two seasons, so she's been a part of two national championships with them. But until she joined the team, I had no idea that they existed either. And they're, like, I think this was their seventh national title in the history of the franchise and their fourth consecutive national title. So, like, the Women's Football Alliance has been around. We just don't, like, really hear about it. And this was the first year that the game was broadcast on ESPN. So that was a big deal. That's a huge deal. That's awesome. Well, congrats to her. Uh, My shout-out is going to be a little less exciting um, compared to that. Uh, I was going to shout-out the person who wrote into The Athletic ranking every Big Ten quarterback. also with an added comparison to which dipping sauce they would be. Oh, my God. <laughs> so just reading a few, CJ Stroud is Chick-fil-A sauce. Sean Clifford is Raising Cane sauce. This is the best one. Cade McNamara and JJ McCarthy are ketchup and mustard. <laughs> Actually, sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, the best one is Graham Mertz, who is cheese sauce, which is oh. so appropriate. My God. <laughs> You can find that article on The Athletic. It's Austin Meek's uh, article from today. <laughs> Is that not the best? amazing. I cannot wait to look that up. It's so funny. That's all we have for today. As a reminder, you can follow Jamie at Jamie Yurich, me at Meredith Hine, and the site at LandGrant33. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks again for listening to Play Like a Girl. And as always, go Bucks. Go Bucks. <laughs>